HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Radio. I'm Severin. This is Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. Today I'm talking with Tristram Stewart, author of Waste. It's a book about food waste, and he is uh, what in England they call a campaigner uh, on a crusade to stop food waste in very brilliant ways. Hello, Tristram. Hello there. Hello there. Uh... Thank you for coming and joining us. This is a show, usually we have only young farmers, so you're a little bit of an exception, but I've been watching your work and very uh, excited by it, and I thought people here might be interested to hear about what's going on over there. Will you give a little summary of your activities as a way of introduction? Well, although I may be an exception as as a campaigner on your program, in fact, my campaign started when I was a, a young farmer, a 15-year-old farmer, actually, um, and I, I was living in, in Sussex in the south of England, and I decided to buy some pigs and some chickens and started breeding them both and obviously uh, rearing them for meat and eggs. And I wanted to feed my pigs in the most traditional and environmentally friendly way, uh, namely on food waste. This is why humans domesticated pigs several thousand years ago. It was precisely in order to recycle food waste back into food. So I went to my local baker and started collecting all the bread that they were chucking out each week, and I went to the greengrocer and to a market, and I went to the canteen of my school kitchens, and I asked them to keep the leftovers uh, every day, and I would take them home and feed my pigs. And I was collecting potatoes also off a farmer who was throwing them away because they were the wrong shape or size for the supermarket. And this was great. My pigs turned a lot of 
that waste into pork and I butchered it and made sausages and sold all that pork to my school friend's parents. And, uh, of course, the pork was the most delicious pork I've ever had. But the problem was that I noticed that most of the food waste that I was feeding to my pigs was actually still fit for human consumption. And I knew that I was only scratching the surface and that obviously the supermarkets were filling their bins with food. They didn't even want to talk to me about what they were throwing away. And so I went around the back and had a look inside their bins and I could see sack loads of food being trucked off to be buried into landfill sites. And, um, you know, I was an environmentalist back then and I just thought this can't be the most sensible use of resources and we're hemorrhaging out food from every link in the supply chain. And so I started a, a campaign on food waste and I started taking um, the media around the back of supermarkets and sandwich stores and saw their jaws drop as they took on board the fact that, you know, this huge, infinite abundance that we see in all of our supermarkets relies on filling bins at the end of the day with perfectly good food. And then eventually, as you said, I wrote my book, Waste, Uncovering the Global Food Scandal, and it's published in 2009 uh, on this issue. And I did a global survey and calculated that a third of the entire world's food supply uh, is wasted and exposed the places in the food supply chain where most of that waste arises on farms, out at sea, in factories, supermarkets, restaurants, and of course in people's homes, and tried to point to ways in which this huge, tragic scandal could actually be turned into a massive opportunity if we want to reduce our impact on the environment, if we want to increase food availability where it's needed most, Reducing food waste is one of the really simple and economically efficient ways of achieving that. And then after I wrote my book, I launched a campaign uh, with a flagship event called Feeding the 5,000. And we fed 5,000 people in the heart of London in Trafalgar Square, all from food that otherwise would have been wasted, those misshapen vegetables that supermarkets refused to buy off farmers so they end up dumping them, plowing them back into the land, or at the very best, feeding them to pigs. And, um, so we, we did that, and now that's become an international uh, movement, and we're doing these Feeding the 5,000 events in, in, in different countries across Europe and hopefully in America soon. And um, what we do is bring together all the local organizations in that city, in that area, to collaborate in their work to combat food waste and we engage the public in positive solutions to the problem and we engage politicians in the kinds of regulation or, or at least policies that they can adopt to tackle the global food waste scandal. So the, the food waste scandal, I like that you call it that, uh, is scandalous um, but it's not only about the, the, the waste that is not eaten, I think it points to the characteristics of our global food system, which are pervasive and, and, and destructive to the interests of farmers as well. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that. The, the supermarkets are throwing away uh, and refusing and rejecting produce on all these kind of superficial commercial uh, characteristics like that it's round or too small or too big or whatever, but that is also a way of 
controlling their purchasing, and 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 it's an unfair pinch point uh, in the line of commerce. Could you reflect on that from a farmer's perspective? This uh, wastefulness, a lot of which is happening at the point of sale, uh, in many ways points to a dysfunction not only in the way of producing waste that's not being eaten and a lot of hungry people could benefit, but also is wasteness that costs the farmer. Um, and since most of our listeners are young farmers, I thought that would be a good place to start examining what are the politics and what is the kind of economic logic of the supermarket uh, that causes them to reject food and to throw away food, and how does that impact the farmers? Well, what I would say is that, you know, the waste of good, fresh food on farms is both one of the worst examples of waste in our supply chain, but at the same time, it is also one of the more positive angles to come at this because there are really good examples of very quick uh, wins in terms of when policies have changed, the impact this has had on farm incomes, obviously on the environment and on the use of resources more efficiently. That it, you know, It's one of the areas that, that, that gives me some degree of hope that we're capable of, of solving this problem. You know, to start with the, the, the problem, anyone who's involved in the business of selling fresh produce to supermarkets will know that you don't just produce carrots for a supermarket. You get given a brochure that tells you what a carrot looks like. It only must be of a certain length, no longer and no shorter. It's got to be a certain width. It's got to have a certain degree of brightness and orangeness. And it mustn't have any forks or bends that mean that, you know, it would get in the way of a single stroke of a peeler, for example. And there's a whole list of things, and you get sent the images of what a real carrot looks like and what, you know, a non-carrot looks like. And maybe you employ people to to sort through that, or if you're more capital intensive, you actually spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a, on a machine with an electronic eye that looks at all the carrots as they go past on the conveyor belt. And any carrot that doesn't fit this kind of platonic ideal of carrotness gets a jet of air fired at it, and it gets blown off the conveyor belt and into the waste stream, where at very best it can hope to be fed to a sheep or a cow, um, but uh, sometimes just you know, left to rot. And if one field is uh, uh, is producing a lot of these wonky carrots, you know, the farmers very often it's not economically uh, sustainable even to, to to harvest those carrots. So the whole field gets left in. And this applies to all of the fresh fruit and vegetables that supermarkets are buying. And you know, some farmers have managed to find secondary markets for a lot of their outgrades. They might sell it to a manufacturer who makes pies or somebody who makes juice. But, you know, this, the, the cosmetic standards are so straight that the quantities of these outgrades are so vast that very often a, a farmer can not find a secondary market for it and they end up being wasted or used in a suboptimal way as livestock feed when really they're, they're very good uh, quality foods for humans. And of course, this has a massive 
uh, impact on a farmer. It's regularly the case that farmers will be wasting 20, 30, 40, and occasionally even 100% of their entire harvest on account of these cosmetic standards. Um, Having said that that's a really big problem, it's actually one with a relatively simple solution. If you encourage consumers to, uh, to, to want ugly fruit and vegetables and you can show to supermarkets that consumers aren't so daft as to think that all carrots grow in a, in a, in a, like rulers and all potatoes are like snooker balls with perfect, uh, you know, smooth skins. If you can convince everyone uh, 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 of that fact, you can dramatically change the market. And what we've seen in the last three years, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, partly, I hope, as a result of our campaign, but also of the tightening economic circumstances, no doubt, uh, the fastest-growing sector of the fresh produce market in the United Kingdom is ugly fruit and vegetables. And, in fact, we had such a bad harvest this year that supermarkets were forced to buy uh, of farmers cosmetically imperfect produce because we didn't produce enough of the straight carrots so we had to, to uh, sell some of the wonky ones and likewise for our apples and potatoes and a whole load of the other um, fruits and vegetables that we grow here and uh, the National Farmers Union has estimated that this uh, initiative to sell more ugly fruit and vegetables saved roughly 300,000 tons of produce that would normally never have reached consumers and this shows that when the supermarkets put their minds to it, they can perfectly well market this stuff to consumers, and consumers don't mind buying it. And our argument is, well, if it can work one year, why not make it work every year and get rid of these cosmetic standards altogether or relax them very significantly? And the other thing to say about this whole issue is that it's not just a neutral kind of mechanical uh, issue. The supermarkets will very often be very flexible about how they apply these cosmetic standards depending on how badly they want the produce. So, I mean, this year is a really good example. There wasn't enough uh, produce out there, so they relaxed their standards. Conversely, if they're not selling potatoes very fast or if there's a glut of potatoes, they will start applying these cosmetic standards very, very strictly and they'll reject produce that in another year or even another moment in the same season they would have accepted. And this makes the uh, whole market of fresh produce very unpredictable for the farmer. And it introduces the risk of wasting produce, which, uh, you know, according to the business model the farmer had, had relied upon. And, uh, and obviously, this puts farmers in a, in a very difficult position uh, economically. Uh, manufacturers uh, are subject to the same kind of vagaries of, of supermarket buying powers. Like there's disproportionate power resting in the very few branded supermarkets that, that are responsible for bringing most of us in the United Kingdom and in the United States uh, our food. So the supermarkets have more power than the suppliers. And um, I'm pleased to say that uh, just in the last few weeks in the UK Parliament, and this is something that I, you know, I certainly encourage campaigners, legislators, and farmers to get together and, and, and see if, if something similar can be worked in the United States. It's uh, a new law to try and govern and regulate the disproportionate power that supermarkets have in the supply chain. And um, if you'll allow me, I'll, I'll just spell out exactly how this has arisen because it's one of the most exciting pieces of food legislation that has come about over the last several years. 
Yes, please um, do, because we've had Department of Justice actions around consolidation, and we haven't seen progress, so it's nice to hear the good news. Well, this is, this is something that has been in the air for more than four years now, and it all starts with uh, a government, uh, well, an independent agency working on behalf of a government uh, office called the Office of Fair Trading. It's called the Competition Commission, and it was tasked with the job of investigating whether the supermarkets were acting anti-competitively, i.e. not according to competition law. And um, it was very difficult to pin down supermarkets for any specifically uh, illegal activity on the point of of competition. But one of the things that the Competition Commission uh, really took the supermarkets to task for was this abuse of their disproportionate power and the costs that this uh, imposed upon their suppliers, namely the manufacturers and the farmers. And uh, one of the specific examples that it uh, found a lot of evidence for uh, in the supply chain was, for example, a supermarket uh, changing its order at the last minute so that you know they had encouraged a farmer verbally to produce you know, 500 tons of carrots every week for the whole of the summer. And then, in fact, you know, they found some carrots more cheaply from Spain or carrots weren't selling so well. And so they actually turned around and said, well, well, you know, we only want 300 tons. And so the farmer is left with 200 tons and and no one to sell it to. And similarly to a sandwich manufacturer, they would have the same sort of thing. And this meant that the suppliers were incurring the cost of this waste and the supermarkets, because they rejected it before they actually even received the delivery, were not incurring any of the cost. Uh, and the Competition Commission called this a moral hazard. They said this means that the people causing the waste don't have the financial incentive to reduce it. And that is unfair. Uh, and they established something called the Grocery Standard Code of Practice, which essentially said, you know, you, you, the supermarkets cannot continue to act in this unfair way. However, there were no punishments or, or indeed any primary legislation to back up this code. And so it was really just a, a, a piece of paper that could be ignored and regularly was ignored. And so we campaigners and the Competition Commission itself have been saying for a long time now, what we need is a piece of legislation that brings into being a policeman, an ombudsman, or in this case it's called an adjudicator, to police this code with the power to punish anyone who breaks the code. It makes sense. You know, if you're going to have a law, you've got to have sanctions for, for people that break the law. And uh, this was resisted by the supermarkets, and as a result, it took a lot of years but in this present parliamentary session, we finally got it time in Parliament. It's been discussed, and uh, if all goes well, and it looks pretty positive, the adjudicator will come into existence, will have the power to find supermarkets who break the code, and this will help to protect farmers, not just in Britain, but even small farmers on the other side of the world who are indirectly supplying supermarkets with, for example, bananas or beans grown in Kenya, and protect them from an abuse of the supermarket's disproportionate power. And it remains to be seen whether it works, but it is a a potentially very big step in the right direction. So this 
this this is wonderful news, and it points to, of course, the the two places of of interest. We in the United States have uh, many of us very little experience selling to supermarkets, uh, who are in, especially in the young farming category. We are limited with our capital. We cannot compete with the highly capitalized, mega-scaled producers. Um, of fresh vegetables in California. California produces, I think, 65% of the vegetables for the United States. So those of us who are in other regions and and are growing vegetables are usually selling them in uh, alternative markets, co-ops, CSAs, regional stores, um, and through farmer's markets. So we're not necessarily encountering in our startup years the pinch point uh, of these of these kind of monopolistic supermarkets, but we, many of us, as we grow and as we scale our businesses, are interested to be providing more food regionally and and growing food also for hospitals and schools, uh, and it, and also for for grocery stores. And what we're facing is the. Uh, food safety legislation, and I wondered if you had any uh, knowledge of how or whether food safety legislation would also be manipulated by the buyers uh, as an excuse uh, uh, in buying or rejecting produce. Well, the, the the food safety regulation that that is perhaps most confusing in the states is the expiry dates that that produce um, uh, carries, and you know, in the case of fresh fruit and vegetables, of course, expiry dates are more or less completely useless, and uh, and yeah, I think. It, a lot of people think that the, the the problem there is 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 the legislation, but very often it's it's the decision of uh, you know of actually private enterprises companies deciding to use labels in in one way rather than another. Um, I mean, I, I can't think of a, a specific piece of uh, of legislation in in California that you're. Uh, that you might be referring to. I, I mean, I'm I, I'm generally aware. For example, if you you know you I understand that things like making fresh yogurt or sorry yogurt in uh, in California can 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 be very very difficult given the regulatory framework. But with regard to fresh produce, the, the fresh fruit and vegetables, I I mean, I'm not really aware. If you could give me a specific piece of legislation, that well, you're, that you're uh, maybe about. I I mean. That's okay. I the, the 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 law is called GAP. It's called Good Agricultural Practices. Mm. But I, but it's not. You shouldn't have to answer questions that are regulations. But I'll bring it on. I'll bring someone else on who's an expert on that. Um, I was interested to circle back about um, you know if this if the scale of this waste um, and the kind of ecologies of operating in the kinds of scale that we operate on currently with these huge fields of potatoes and carrots and then these huge supermarkets and these huge cities, how do you project that the secondary markets or the waste markets or the recapturing of these food products could happen logistically? How do you Mm. make that waste going to be food for pork? 
uh, well, in the real world. You know, what we've seen in the United Kingdom and increasingly across Europe, and I, and I think you know to a very large extent, it's it's happening already in in the states, is uh, a massively increased uh, awareness about the issue of waste. And with that awareness has become uh, has come a, a hive of innovation, and literally a day doesn't go by without somebody sending me an email or a message about a new project that they've launched, a new strategy, a new company that's been set up to to market some of this kind of food that's being going to waste. It doesn't take long for an entrepreneur to realise that one-third of the world's food being wasted is a massive opportunity if you want to try and recover the value that exists in that food. And, uh, I mean, what what we've done with our, our campaign, Feeding the 5,000, is we actually team up with farmers who are, uh, who are wasting uh, fresh fruit and vegetables uh, because of those cosmetic standards. And we say, look, yeah, yeah, instead of wasting it, Give them to us. We'll feed 5,000 people for free in the space of two hours. And, um, and uh, we bring on board all the different organizations and stakeholders to participate in this celebration of uh, natural products and, and promote all the solutions that, that are out there. And in the wake of this really high-profile campaign, uh, we've, we're now... Constantly in touch with, for example, you know, a, a friend of mine has set, set up a, a, a chutney company, and she's set up her kitchen on one of these massive wholesale markets that wastes unbelievable tonnages of fruit and vegetables every single day, and and she recuperates what she can, turns it into chutneys and jams, and sells that in farmers markets uh, uh, around London. I myself have set up. Um, something called the Gleaning Network UK, which is really taking from an established uh, system that you have in the, United, in the United States, but which doesn't exist at all. You'd be surprised to know anywhere in, in Britain or indeed in, in most other European countries. And it's, uh, as I'm sure most of your listeners are aware, a matter of taking the hundreds of eager volunteers uh, that there are out there to farms to recuperate uh, as much of this cosmetic uh, cosmetically imperfect produce as possible, taking that to food redistribution charities who then take that on to society's most vulnerable members so that you're tackling two problems in one. You're tackling the problem of waste on farms and you're taking tackling the problem of, of, uh, of food insecure people not eating enough fresh fruit and vegetables. And um, it's something that's really kicking off here and it's such great fun taking people out to to do a day of harvesting when, you know, most of the time they're in other types of employment and, and getting out into fields is a great educational experience. Um, I, I also set up a, an organization. We were essentially freezing a lot of the fruit uh, and making smoothies and ice creams from it. There's, there's a thousand different ways in which, uh, you know, edible produce can be made into something that people are actually willing to, to buy and certainly to eat. And, um, and so I think that the, the solutions lie in, in, in two different directions. First of all, those cosmetic standards need to be, you know, very significantly relaxed so that the quantity of outgrades that arises is smaller. And secondly, you need to develop those, uh, those secondary markets uh, through whether it's processing or, or simply marketing, um, you know, this, 
this ugly fruit and vegetables as something that's that's actually attractive and and, and novel and, and and part of the wonderful variety that nature brings forth. Um, well, and I that as a result of all these relationships and the people who meet in the square and eat together and the people who are engaged in in in, in capture and dump and dumpster diving and will also understand that the highly centralized and specialized uh, food system that we currently have may also be an anomaly and that one region focusing so so much on the overproduction and, and governments that subsidize the overproduction and the, and the, the consequent undervaluation of the unit crop uh, is a phenomena of our current system, but in all likelihood that that, sh- that system will shift and that we, we are needed to shift it. And so that you could have businesses based on waste in the same way as you could fill your apartment with free stuff off the street. Um, but that in order for us to shift that over, over, overproduction cycle, um, it's going to take thousands of new businesses um, and farms that are more integrated in and of themselves so that you're feeding those carrots that are left over pigs that you yourself as a and we young farmers who are trying to grow vegetables in a more ecological way aren't competing with uh that requires so much business model that is uh very unreasonable it makes you waste so much so it's a long it's a big pros- it's a big prospect a lot of work ahead how do you feel well uh, in two different ways. Uh, on the one hand, I've seen food waste go from a non-issue when I was young and started this campaign to something that has now been uh, adopted as a global priority. So, you know, in the last few months, the United Nations has asked us to come on board and see what we can do together in a global campaign against food waste. The European Commission has done the same uh, I've had in the last month three or four different organizations, the National Resource Defense Council and um, various other uh, organizations in America have reached out uh, to me and said, you know, the food waste revolution is really kicking off in America and we should be working together. And so I really feel this is a global revolution against food waste. I think that people everywhere see images of mountains of food being wasted and everyone just feels automatically, almost instinctively, that it's wrong, that it's not a sensible use of our resources, that it's causing a negative environmental and social impact, and that the solutions to this huge problem are actually delicious, namely eating and enjoying food rather than throwing it away. And I think that there are loads of other really big problems out there that are much, much more difficult to solve, uh, you know, the fact that we eat too much meat in the Western world, meat and dairy products, the fact that we're chopping down forests in South America to fuel that whole industry, global warming, all of these are really huge problems, and solving them will involve a degree of sacrifice uh, 
of things that we like to have. But solving the global food waste scandal doesn't even involve a sacrifice. It just involves eating food rather than throwing it away. And so, in a way, I'm very, very hopeful that we can win uh, the war on waste. But uh, when you look at it in a wider perspective, I'm afraid to say that as a, a global population, we are still accelerating in the wrong direction. And we're in the middle of a mass extinction event, which if it continues according to current trends, most of the species that have evolved for you know, eons uh, that exist on the planet right now will uh, be extinct by the end of the century. Um, there are a billion hungry people in the world, and there's only a, a very a slight glimmer of hope that we're going to massively uh, reduce that, that, that problem. And um, I think that the trends are, 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 as I say, get, you know, getting worse rather than better. However, I do think that we humans still have a chance to avert the worst of the environmental crisis that we're in. I think that there are examples of societies in the past that have done even greater feats of social change to bring about massive and dramatic improvements in the way in which they grow their food and the way in which they run the society. And therefore, I do think it is in our power to do this. And by God, if it isn't worth fighting for that, I don't know what is. Wow, I'm in. Uh, I'm in, and I and I can't wait to try one of these dumpster smoothies that you guys are serving. So everyone better keep a tra- track of Tristram. His website is tristramstuart.com. Uh, and he's in the United Kingdom. His book is called Waste. It's about food waste. Another one he had was called The Bloodless Revolution. Um, I read the waste book. It's very good. Um, and again, we'll continue to, to work on our end of the equation, which is setting up farms which are not wasteful uh, and which do not have all this horrible, so much packaging on your English produce. We don't have it that bad over here. We have less packaging than you, even in the biggest supermarkets. Um, I was in integrating... California earlier this year, and I was I was really impressed by some of the produce you could get. Uh, just loose. Oh yeah, well, delicious. California I mean, is you've a got garden it all in California. It's almost unfair, you know. <laughs> I know it's it's pretty in, it's pretty intense. Um, but we'll work on on developing more integrated, more regional, um, multi-species grazing. Uh, growing vegetables and animals on the same farm so that we don't have this intensity and scale, the intensity and scale which can lead to this wastefulness, but also the vulnerability of the grower, of the farmer, the vulnerability of the grower being messed with by the retailer. So it's in our own best interest, and I think it's a slow-moving, a slower-moving uh restructuring that we're talking about in our in our movement, but I am very glad to know of your of this adjacent and potentially quicker moving movement that that can help, especially with hunger. Um, uh, really huge, huge work you're doing and we're so thankful. 
this has been another episode of Greenhorns Radio. Um, one thing everyone should know is it's conference season, and so there's conferences almost every other day in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, in Texas, in Indiana, in Florida. Uh, if you live in a state, that state ha- does have an agricultural conference, and likely they have one that's also sustainable, uh, sustainable farming. So very good idea is to rub your new nickels together and go. Most of them have uh, scholarships that you can apply for. Go out and meet some people. It's really going to be worth your while to work as a team in your region, to know who's doing what and what's succeeding and what's not. Um, people are very transparent with their uh, operations. This is a nice characteristic of the farming community, and people will tell you if what they're, do- what they're doing is working if they think there's more market for it. Um, so learn from other people's mistakes if you can. Another thing to know is that the Greenhorn 2013... New Farmer's Almanac, which is this new publication we've been toiling over here in the office, it's 320 pages long, full of useful and practical information. With the unknown will be our job. The weather is not predicted uh, to be predictable in the next year, but uh, regardless, we will move forward, and I hope that you will order that almanac and benefit. There's 100 contributors. Okay, that's enough. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.